Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi and welcome to today's episode of Climbing Consulting. In today's episode, we celebrate International Women's Day and doing something slightly different, I wanted to share some of the stories from a selection of our fantastic female guests that we've had on the series so far. Women who have built brilliant careers in the consulting industry and who serve as great role models to both other women looking to climb in consulting as well as to leadership teams more broadly, thinking about what they can do to improve gender diversity in their firms. For regular listeners, as I mentioned last episode, don't you worry, the interviews you know and love are coming back. I've got some fantastic guests lined up, some brilliant women included in that mix, and I'm really excited to share those with you, starting with episode 100, which will be the next episode in the series. But for today, for International Women's Day, I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from guests that we've had on the show, all brought together to discuss and share some really important issues for International Women's Day. In this episode, you'll hear from female leaders from across the consulting spectrum, 
from boutique consulting founders to big four partners, including Irene Molestov, formerly CEO of SEA Partners, Hannah Farah, CEO of CF, Trisha Nelson from EY, Tara Lajamacare, MD of FT Strategies, and Jess Frame, MD and partner at BCG. In this one, they share their poignant perspectives on what life is like for women in the consulting industry, the unique challenges that women face, and what we need to do as an industry to level the playing field. Just a few examples of what you're going to hear include the real-life gender bias that these female leaders have faced as women in the industry, and their advice to senior leaders like yourself on what needs to change to improve gender equality in consulting. The importance of supporting women in your firm before, during, and after maternity leave, and what you can do, whether you're male or female, to help set both expectant mothers and returning mothers that work for you up for success. And finally, advice for women who are working in the consulting industry on what you can do to climb to the top and emulate the success of today's guests. I really enjoyed listening back to these conversations. The stories and the insights that today's guests shared showed that while steps are being made, it's really become clear that there's still more work to do. And today's episode gives you an insight into what you can do in your firm to help improve gender equality in consulting. Whether you are a woman building a career in the industry or a senior leader who wants to do more to level the playing field in your firm, I know you're going to get a ton from today's episode. So with the intro done and dusted, please enjoy today's episode of Climbing Consulting. So I want to turn back to how I had misunderstood you before around around diversity. And the, the reason for the, the albeit quite bad segue was I'd noticed, uh, I saw on LinkedIn the other day that you've been included in the Women in Healthcare Leadership Top, is it the Top 100? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. And I'd, I'd be really interested in your take specifically on and take this as as women in consulting women in in the NHS or, or more broadly if you if you like but your take on on diversity and actually either what you're doing at, and or what our industry needs to be thinking more about to to attract and then retain the best female leaders and, and help them achieve their potential well I'm really passionate about women in leadership positions bringing on women in leadership positions and I always have been I mean I've I, I've been lucky enough to be surrounded by a group of women who have offered me mentorship, support, told me what not to do, told me when I was being an idiot as much as, you know, they've called to be kind because I think it is harder for women still today, although some of these women, I think, open lots of doors for people like me, but it's still harder to get to those leadership positions. And even in well, in our client, or lots of our clients in the NHS, which is so dominated by women, you still see them disproportionately represented at the top. I think that it's still about women having to balance the burden of what they do at home. And it's not really a burden. I think it's an honor to be a mother, but the balance between the expectations and the role that I play in the family and what I need to do in the workplace and a lot of prejudices that can surround that. So when I got 
promoted to being a director within the NHS. I was pregnant at the time with my second child and a number of people were hugely critical of my appointment. Really? Very senior people who were critical of, you know, in my state, how could I be? And these are things they voiced publicly? Uh, Yeah. Wow. Well, and in not to my face, but Mm. to people who were decision makers in that context and in a way that it was obvious that I was going to hear that view. And was that just men or was that other women too? Dominantly men. Yeah, men. And lots of white men champion women and, you know, would describe themselves as feminists. Mm-hmm. So, but unfortunately, I, I think that some behaviours which women find very difficult prevail. I was having a conversation with a, a senior colleague in the, in the system just a few weeks ago, and he was describing, you know, chief executive level discussions in which actually the two senior women in the room complained afterwards about the behavior of um, one of the men in particular. And they obviously felt that it was really inappropriate and he hadn't quite seen and felt it on those terms. So he could see it was bad. He didn't realize it was going to have that kind of an impact on them. And I think there's something about just the behavioral norms, the kind of assertion and the extent to which people like conflict or don't like conflict. I mean, even if you look at the gender pay gap and a lot of the evidence behind that, it's not in the, you know, in sweeping generalizations, but lots of women won't argue for pay increases in the way that men will argue for a pay increase. And speaking very personally, I, you know, I, I don't like talking about but in when I worked in the NHS, I, like the idea I was going to go and say I deserved more money, I just wouldn't. But yeah, I'd be surrounded by other colleagues who just thought, male colleagues in the main, who would easily argue for a, for a pay rise. So and there's something about society and the round, how it behaves, what it teaches women. And it starts at a very young age, I think. And then it infects and pervades in the way that we, mm. we all work. And it's unconscious. I think it's a really profound point, as you say, that it starts much earlier than, than work. So go back as far as, as you want in terms of that timeline. But, but what should, should we, society, the industry, be doing differently? How, how can we both help women feel comfortable and confident to have some of those conversations, but also put in place, I guess, the, the counter to that of put in place structures so they, they don't need to or don't feel they need to? Yeah, I I mean, I know there's other people who are much better educated on this topic in terms of what really has impact than me. So I'm speaking from my own sort of personal biases, but I think like twofold. One is I have seen a, you know, a big strive in recent years about supporting flexible working and allowing people to operate in their own way, but trusting them that they're going to get the the job done, so to speak. And I think unless people really mean that and embrace that agenda, it is hard for uh, particularly women, because I do think that there is a disproportionate domestic burden that gets placed on them to operate at the highest levels and live the rest of one's life. I also think senior women, you know, me included, need to be honest about 
what it takes to put that work-life balance in place. And you have to make uh, sacrifices, which people will judge you for, but also you have to accept that you don't have to do everything yourself. I think that does bring us on to quite nicely, like you say, navigating it and consulting. And I'm really keen to get your take on the topic you said you're passionate about, actually how we improve diversity and how we make consulting a more not just accessible, but climbing the career ladder, you know, a path that is open to everyone. Because you know, if we caricature 20, 30 years ago, it was a sort of old boys club. The top table was all white males. There's still quite a lot of us. And, you know, I'm saying this very much. I want to broaden the conversation, but I'm very conscious I am a six foot six white male. So I kind of, <laughs> this is a huge question. So I'll let you pick the bits you want of it, Trish. Of almost what should consulting firms be doing to to really help make it a more approachable and and a career that you know women let's take women but it could be diverse groups whatever you you see sort of the link to more accessible you know you mentioned sort of actually part of it is anyone not just women but people taking some of this you know the careers there but obviously there's some things around actually making it a career that's viable to everyone and i kind of I'll almost start, and this might be the wrong place, but I was looking at your LinkedIn profile ahead of this and your banner is, you know, will the future of women be shaped by policy or action? And I, I'll leave that as a starting point. How, you know, what's the answer? And, and, you know, if it's not one sort of golden bullet, what are some of those small sort of silver pellets that we need to start thinking about for consulting leaders listening to this? Wow, that is a big question. And you're absolutely right. So first thing I would say is, you can't apologize about being a six foot tall white guy because you can't change any of that. But what you can do is you can use it to really good advantage because you're in a position of privilege. I, as a white person, am in a position of privilege and we can touch on Black Lives Matters as well as a, as a, as a significant movement across the world, let alone within my own firm, where I'm very, very proud of what we're doing there. But I think if I take the broad answer, so let's start with women. That's one lens on inclusion for me, just one lens. But I do know there are points in my career where I have felt inferior. Um, I've absolutely experienced sexism. I've absolutely experienced bullying. I've experienced lots that you would imagine by the time you get to 51, you have in a fairly you know, traditional workplaces in some of the areas I've worked. But I can also say there are huge advantages to being a woman. And when you, again, you learn to embrace that. And until men can have babies, then, you know, there are certain things that only we can do. And when you start to drill that down and you go, right, actually, I'm only having a baby. So so I'll give an example of how I personally intervene. Is any woman in my team that's going on maternity leave has to speak to me before they stop. (laughs) I kind of make them because I want them to have the confidence and passion that, you know, they're going to maternity leave. They're not going to wait for years. Well, sometimes they are, but they have they have a job to come back to. And yes, they'll feel different. And yes, there'll be different things to juggle. But actually, I want to give people a vision of what they're going to come back to, not what they're going to lose. And I think that's been really important. And I had none of that in either of my maternity leaves. It was It could not be more different, actually. And again, not through any conscious bias, just through inept leadership, you know, really people tiptoeing around the conversation, people genuinely not thinking far ahead in advance about what the business might be like you're coming back to, what strategy might be in place, you know, what leadership roles might be available. Dare I say people can progress and you learn new skills when you're not in the workplace having babies, definitely. And again, that's just one angle of being a woman. So I look at some of our younger women and particularly our BME women and our people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And there are inherent biases in many things that that we do in life, let alone within consulting. So we still have a long way to go in that. But I think if I were to 
think about your question around what do we need to do as consulting firms more is the answer. So you're absolutely right. I look up and even within my own organization, it's still not diverse enough. We know that. So we're acting on that. I'm also very clear that I'm in my job because I'm good at it, not because I'm a woman. So there's that element to it. No woman wants to be in a role because she's a woman. No person from an, you know, a diverse background, whether that be race, gender, sexuality or socioeconomic background, wants to be in that role because of their background. So we're very, very conscious of that. The reason I love that banner, is it policy or action, is I, I believe it's an element of both. And that banner was, I've had that up there for a few years now. And every now and again, I think about taking it down and I go, nope, nope, I'm keeping it up there because it still very much helps to define who I am and what's important about me. I want people to look at my LinkedIn profile and feel that they get me. And that, so that's been really important to me. And, you know, that was in a year where I was chairing one of the G20 committees at Chatham House with 60, 70 policy makers as well as advocates and academics and people from business on this topic and EY were involved in that we're very involved um, in movements I guess you know it's we can't change the world on our own but we like to get lots of people together who can you know whether it be Davos or whatever and I guess that that has really struck me that there were policy makers in that room that day and this this was about global economy it wasn't just about the UK so it does need a combined force of using our position in the world as consultancies to drive good. Hence, our entire purpose is about building a better working world. We're very, very serious about that. It's massively attractive to people that we recruit, but we mean it. We absolutely mean it. And then if I think about some of the opportunities I've had personally, as I've got more experience to make a difference, you know, giving evidence in the Scottish Parliament, it's a few years ago now, actually three years ago, I think, around the gender pay gap and giving advice essentially to the Economies and Fair Work uh, Committee around what should Scotland do around the gender pay gap and the role that business can play in that. And Scotland's very different, I guess, business landscape market size of business, massive small to medium-sized enterprise organisations that were being caught in different ways by the legislation. So I think we have a role to play where we have such a an important influencing role is the conscience of business in general, not just for ourselves, but on behalf of many others. That I, and I think we do use that well. I think we can use it more, but also by role modelling to business and to industry and to you know individuals and society that big organisations can make a massive difference. You'll be aware of our work on long-term value, our strong belief that, you know, it's no longer just about profits. I'm not sure it ever was, to be honest, but it's very, very, very transparent now that, you know, the world of work has a massive role to play in society. To exactly the point you've just mentioned, and I'd love you to, I guess, answer this in terms of your story, but equally the advice you give to other women, other mentees from, from minority groups in, in our industry. The thing that struck me in sort of your journey is actually you climbed very fast at McKinsey and it's well known for its you know, reasonably aggressive up or out culture. You climbed, you, you chose to leave for, for FT Strategies and, and to pursue growing that business. But I'd love to just get your advice for anyone who's entering a, a McKinsey or, or one of their similar competitors on what they should be doing. And if it's just everything you've just said, but do it, you know, we can move on very quickly. But I'd love to understand if there's anything else that really helped you over those nine years to to build the career you had there. So I have to clarify first, I, I didn't progress as quickly 
as I should have, and many of my peers actually, for a number of reasons. One was I <laughs> went on maternity leave nine months into the role. So I literally in week one realized I was expecting after we had just arrived from honeymoon, which was not the plan. And then after I came back about a year later, then I was off on maternity leave um, shortly after to have twins. So wow. I started off the first three years of my McKinsey career with young children, um, which is, you know, hard in most jobs. Certainly it was at McKinsey for sure. So I, I was always sort of balancing what some people might <laughs> insensitively refer to as the mommy track versus the partner track. This is an actual phrase that was used. Wow, what really in, in public people would gosh. Yeah, I mean, it's not formal. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's a reflection of how things operate. But certainly, I think there was a misconception by some people that, you know, as a consultant with young children, it would be hard to go or get to partner via the traditional route and you probably wanted to do a few part-time stints, take things a bit easy, etc. So pace yourself. And to be fair to McKinsey, they were acting on quite constructive feedback from, you know, lots of initiatives around trying to promote a more manageable, balanced way of working, particularly for returning moms. And I think one of the suggestions was actually the up or out culture is probably not reflective of how many, you know, a sizable number of people and not actually just moms, actually, even working dads as well, wanted to build their path to partner and um, people wanted to have flexibility options, etc. So, you know, in a way, slightly fair, some people wanted to take things easier. And it was nice that we had that option. But, you know, but also for people like me, I did want to progress quickly sometimes. And other times I just wanted to be more present, even if that meant, you know, risking getting to the next level as quickly as I thought I would want to. I think the other reason was prioritizing the wrong things. So back to our point around, I thought it was all about keeping my head down, doing a really good job. And then whatever time I had was running out to get to, you know, bedtime or bath time before the children went to bed. But actually, whilst that was important, I think that I probably should have recognized that there was an element of, you know, making the CST drinks, right, to network with the senior partners who were deciding who to put on that, you know, really high profile project that would give me the exposure that I needed to the promotions committee, right? So there were a number of choices that I made that I think absolutely meant that it took me, I'd say, well, you know, an extra two or three years to get to associate partner. And probably the final thing to highlight was uncertainty. I, I was always thinking, okay, do I stay, you know, do two years, have the sort of McKinsey badge and move on to something else? Or do I stay on and make partner? And whilst, you know, there were certain times I felt like, actually, this is what I wanted. I can see this happening. There were also other times where I wasn't sure, either because I wasn't clear on if the firm would foster an environment for someone like me to be successful. I wasn't sure in my own ability but what that meant was it manifested as uncertainty and probably not the sort of commitments that a senior partner who is thinking about, am I going to try and make this person partner quickly, was looking for. Mm. So having said all of that, I would say 
some of the lessons and advice based on my experience would be one, be very clear what you want and get the sponsorship that is essential to getting you to where you want to be. And when I say be very clear, yes, be clear in your mind. And yes, there will be times where you're not sure or you change your mind or, you know, whatever it might be. However, recognize, and this will vary by culture, but certainly for my previous firm, recognize that it's all about your story. I remember, you know, going into review season and I would say, well, I, I delivered, you know, 20% increase in revenue and da, 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 da for this project and da, 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 da. And I contributed to all these things. And my brilliant evaluator at the time would say, Tara, put the paper down and talk to me. Tell me about your story. Inspire me. And you have to inspire people with your own narrative. You almost have to build the brand that you want people to recognize and scream about. And you need to continue to invest in that brand, of course, with evidence. So don't make stuff up that isn't completely true. But it's it's actually a really interesting exercise to say, you know, and she said, when I walk into these review meetings, what do you want people to already be thinking when they see your name before I even start speaking? So, you know, a year in advance, I would say to my mentees, literally think about the review meeting at the end of the year or think about the introduction at the conference, whatever the context might be, and think about what you want people to say and describe it in the most compelling and inspiring of words you know I I remember I would say things like well clients say I'm really good with building rapport and mobilizing and she would say things like Tara people would say you're a client whisperer (laughs) and I was like well so, so there's an element of really painting this vision of who you are and what you stand for and the impact you make and then working backwards from that to say, OK, if I want people to say I'm a client whisperer <laughs> or something less <laughs> cringeworthy, <laughs> what do I have to be doing now? And what that means is it allows you prioritize opportunities as well. Right. So I went from just taking whatever I was given to actually almost sometimes aggressively going out to partners and saying, I want to be on that project because this is how it fits into my portfolio. And this is how it fits into my narrative. So the first thing, as I said, is be very clear on who you are, what you want your brand to be, and then ruthlessly focus on creating that brand and creating the opportunities. And then the second part is about allies. People make the promotion decisions, right? People make the decisions that lead to promotions. So the projects, the client opportunities, etc. So investing as much in meeting the right people, getting them to support you, getting them to be your allies in different ways was a skill set that I wasn't didn't really come naturally to me, but I learned was very, very important. And I started to invest in and by the way, you know, sponsorship is very different to mentoring. Mm. which is something that I got confused by, you know, quite regularly. My mentor and actually sponsor, who's the managing partner of the UK office, Dame Deviant Hunt, would say, you know, a mentor is someone who would say, here is how you get from A to B level. 
But a sponsor is someone who will hold your hand and walk with you, open the doors to get you to point B. And that's exactly what you need to be focusing on. It's finding the people who are going to pick up the phone and speak to the staffing manager who are going to think about how they'll carve the opportunity on a particular client project who they're going to take the risk to say, okay, I'm going to give you this senior client relationship to help you grow in this particular area. So sponsorship is absolutely pivotal as well. What should the leaders of these organisations, people like yourself, partners, managing directors, do to help their more junior colleagues feel comfortable there? Because it's one thing saying that. I know that at 23, you emulate who's around you and you you take the lead there. So actually, what can people at your level be doing to make the more junior people feel comfortable to be themselves? I think a big part of it is making sure there's sufficient diversity in the leadership of any organisation, not just consulting organisations, but to see that lots of different people with lots of different styles and ways of being can be successful and that people have different models to make it work. So it's one of the things that I love about BCG and it sounds like a big plug, it's ugh, it's not meant to be, but I, I do, It is is that sense of there are very different people that have very different models of making this job work that, that act in very different ways. And it's something that I'm very committed to as a woman especially in bringing just a different way of doing things and and one that's sort of been in industry as well I speak differently I approach problems differently I probably tell ruder jokes you know (laughs) and, and, and it's something that and I think the important thing is it's it's you know my big learning has been, you know, it's not about looking for permission from role models. It's about taking permission because no one ever stopped me being myself. I had told myself a story that it was not okay. And I have no idea where it comes. I'm sure it's deep seeded from when I was a child or something. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure there's something there, but actually no one would have ever stopped me doing it. There was never, you know, and so, so I think diverse role models, but also just bravery to be yourself and accept that, you know, why would you want to be somewhere that you didn't want you for who you were like like let's just stand back and think about it well, what's the point so you can go to and I've been there and it's exhausting you know you can go to work and and sort of pretend to be something you're not quite right it takes a huge amount of energy that's wasted energy that's not helping you it's not helping your teams it's not helping your clients or your customers depending on what your job is so yeah so that role model point it's an interesting one and I guess I'm going to give you two sides of a, a coin and, and I'll let you sort of take them. Like I mentioned, I have a few friends and people in the industry. And I mentioned that I was speaking with a senior BCG female partner. What would be useful? What would be interesting? And and there's sort of two answers I got. One is almost your advice for helping get more women onto the boards or into the partner and leadership team of consulting firms. Because at its essence, you go on most consulting firms' websites. Most of them are white. Most of them are men. Interestingly, the other response I got, and it's worth saying this is a sample of to. It was actually a friend, a good friend of mine who said, well, I don't really like talking about it because they almost, by saying there's this issue, it almost implies women need help and actually takes away from some of their achievements. Now, I'm sure the answer lies somewhere in between, but I'd be really interested almost on how we get the conversation to a place or your perspective on how we get to a place where we embrace diversity without groups who are, let's just say, not white men, don't feel, you know, like my friend did, that actually I'm being 
positively discriminated against or positively discriminated for? So I should flag, I'm a very, very proud feminist and I feel very passionate about this. And um, Brilliant. Um, I totally disagree with your friend in every single way. Go on, please. Um, because we are a, a group of women. And again, I just want to Kevin out. I don't speak for women. I speak for <laughs> Jessica like, blah, 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 and all that stuff. But we are grossly underrepresented in business generally and at senior levels, right? So this is an issue. And there has been dialogue and wonderfully increasing dialogue in the last sort of probably five years plus. It's become mainstream media comments and all of those things. So, so number one, if we don't talk about it, it's not going to happen. It's not in people's minds. So we need to talk about it. And it's not about somehow we are lesser if we get a bit of support. Frankly, there's a thousand years of white male privilege to work against. And, you know, and, and again, people will sort of, and it's not a criticism, but it's how it is. We are all hugely biased in ways that is completely subconscious. We don't know about it. And so we need to address that. And so talking about it, frankly, I'm a passionate supporter of quotas and all of those things, because if we don't move things, they're not going to change because we all work with biases. We all like being around people like us. Let's be real. It's it's more fun to have a conversation with someone of the Myers-Briggs type that you've got. All of those things are true. But equally, decision-making and thinking is better with a more diverse group of people. So it's like boards, for example. So decision-making, debate quality comes from diversity of opinion and dissent. But if we've got a certain group of people that dominate, a certain profile of person, are they going to naturally and subconsciously be attracted to people that look like them and sound like them and think like them? We're not getting to that place. So, so I do think there's a point of saying, look, we've been talking about it and saying, well, let's not have quotas. Let's be all gentle for 10 years. And it's not moved anywhere. Show me a stat on women in the, the FTSE 100, women on boards, women in C-suite positions. It's, it's sort of not moving. And I think consulting is one of the worst for it, frankly. It's a probably professional advisory generally. You know, certainly in retail, most clients are much more equally balanced from a gender perspective than, than a lot of the consulting firms that serve them, right? So it's absolutely a challenge. It doesn't detract from individual achievements because this is not a zero-sum game, right? So so if, if women can be successful, they create more opportunities for other women to be successful. We explicitly and subconsciously open people's minds to there being different ways to make it work. We build people's comfort and familiarity with working with people that kind of don't look like you, don't think like you, sound a bit different different, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's really, really important we talk about it. We talk about it until everyone's thoroughly bored of it. And, and a lot of the work I've seen doing at BCG, I've been really pleased actually at the very senior levels of, you know, training on unconscious bias. So at that level of saying, and I've had loads of senior male partners say to me, my goodness, I had no idea that, that I'll do, and it's small things of sort of like, and, and actually I don't relate to this one, which is guys. So they walk in the room like, hi guys, how are we doing? And, 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 and they said, I've not really thought about that, but maybe that's great. That's sort of, you know, a different thing. So I think we do need to talk about, I think we need to have, I'm afraid, quotas, rules, dialogue, et cetera. And, and one thing I would say is that I've noticed that women in industry are much more clued into this than women in consulting. So if I, if I were to speak to someone a woman eight years into her career in consulting and be like, oh, what's it like to be a woman? How are you finding it? There would be complete denial and rejection of there being any issues whatsoever. Whereas if I spoke to a woman in industry, there would be a real appreciation I'd asked. There'd be an open discussion about pros and cons and their thoughts. And there'd be a load of questions they wanted to discuss. 
So I think there's something interesting, which in some ways is great because potentially because it's such an explicit, I guess, kind of as much as possible fact-based appraisal system in consulting, you know where you are. Certainly BCG, I'm sure it's very similar across firms. Like at any given moment, you've got all your appraisals, all your feedback. It's very, very clear how you're doing. Maybe people don't feel the bias as explicitly as you do maybe in industry. But I think it's something we need to be careful of that it doesn't become a blind spot that we we feel like it's an ugly thing to talk about. And that's absolute rubbish because we need more of us. So I, I love the challenge and it's why I, I ask questions like this. And I guess on that point specifically, because I'm fascinated with what you say about the juxtaposition between consulting and industry, you highlight feedback rounds because I think you like, because this is challenging, I think I'll challenge back and almost say that feels like an excuse to an extent. And I'd be fascinated in your view of why, if we take feedback out, why is it that the women in consulting have such a different view? What are those causes that we you know, maybe don't need to know. look at? I, I, I really don't know. I really don't know. And as I say, it's a good thing in some senses because because the women I'm talking to say, or certainly the, the more junior women I'm talking to, the senior women aren't, they're much more vocal about it. And, you know, we've worked bloody hard to get there. And so we're going to look out for people they can. But I think the, the more junior people I speak to say they haven't been conscious of it. They haven't been aware of it. I don't know why that is. It's sort of probably not 100% true. There's probably things maybe being missed. I mean, I look back in my early career and things like, things I didn't help myself to. So I would naturally in a meeting room ask if anyone wanted coffee and go and get the coffees. I might be the most senior person there, but I'd go and get people coffees. But actually I'm positioning myself in a role that's maybe not that helpful. I've been in situations where I've had people make a big fuss about the shoes I'm wearing before a board meeting started, which when I was junior, I thought that was really nice, like how nice they were trying to make me feel involved. But of course, the conversation stopped and then everyone turned back and the guys got on with the meeting and I was just the girl with pretty shoes at the end of the table. So I, th- I think there is the, there does need to be an awareness about it to make sure that we sort of, as women, take up our space actually at the table and make sure we position ourselves in the right way to be at the table, taken seriously and, and, and you know, involved. I think that that brings us quite nicely on to the DNI piece, and I know it's something that you're very passionate about. I understand you started Women at Sea Partners uh, as a forum last year, and I guess a bit like you're saying about the the data side and how just the industry is changing. Almost, where has the industry moved to? Where do you think it needs to get to? And almost, what is stopping it getting from where it is now to to where you, you see it needing to get to? So, I think that diversity and inclusion, just like CSR corporate social responsibilities are making like leaps and bounds. I don't know what do you think. I mean, was anyone having like CSR conversations or DNI conversations a number of years ago? We weren't, were we? So, you know, we started a conversation about women and getting gender parity at SEA Partners a year ago in the UK. We started at a local level. We've changed policies, we changed procedures, we changed the way we do recruitment, for example. We put all our ads through kind of a bias lens to see how much it spoke to males as opposed to females and all these incredibly Mm. sexy, new, exciting things that you can do to try and up your game. But a year on, it's gone from number one, local UK to global, Mm. to um, our CEO committing to numbers to get a certain, you know, number of women into leadership positions. And he's doing that very, very well, actually. We've had a number of new appointments who are all senior women. But it's more than that, because once you look at women, then you look at LGBTQ+. And then once you look at LGBTQ+, 
you look at BAME and then you start thinking, okay, well, what are we doing on wellness? You know, mm. so for example, mental health, as of next year, it's compulsory in all workplaces to have a mental health officer, compulsory. And so we're ahead of the game. We just put someone through the training. So now we've got one. So what is super exciting, Nick, right now is that there's this space to have the conversation. And certainly when I was going through kind of, you know, the early part of my career, I didn't know there was a conversation to be had. And when you did hear things like, let's try and get more women or, you know, more international people, what have you, it felt superficial, but now it's real. So for example, at Davos last week, I don't know if you read it, but Goldman Sachs, which is absolutely incredible to me because of all the traditional banks, you know, they are certainly representative of that. So the CEO of Goldman Sachs made a commitment that any new acquisition they do need to have one to two, what they call diverse members of the board. So a woman plus maybe another, and they will not do it otherwise. So I think that it's growing, it's here, those people, even small firms who are not talking about DNI, it's almost unheard of now, you know. And I think that the years of kind of the white middle-aged male are gone. It doesn't mean that the women are in the boardrooms yet. And in fact, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but there's a lot to, so last night, for example, I hosted a female progression in the workplace, cheese and wine, cheese and wine night here. We had 10 women from incredible firms, you know, direct and above turn up to have the conversation and who are going to tweet about it later, who are going to put it on their LinkedIn social media we had a lot to say. It went on for two and a half hours. I had to stop it. But the conversation is here and it's alive and it's um, it's fantastic. And just because you mentioned it, and if it was Chatham House Rules and you can't talk about it, that's fine. But what were some of those challenges that the, the women last night or others you've spoken to previously almost highlight? What is it that's you know, right now preventing women to climb and almost for anyone listening who's in your position, you know, running a consulting firm or, or a practice area that they can be doing to enable, as you've mentioned, you know, it's not just women, but diverse groups, not white men, to climb in consulting and, and develop the career they want there. I think the challenge with, if we just talk about women in particularly in consulting is on entry point, there's a 50-50% ratio, right? So it's actually really equal. So the industry can attract women. That's not an issue. But the issue is retention during those kind of what we call make or break years. And that's that sort of 30 to 45 where the demands on a woman are um, multifaceted, i.e. to have a family, to uh, go up in their career. If you're in consulting, I think anyone listening to this will know that Travel is a key part of being a consultant, and you and I talked about I know, we this. Talked about it before. We talked about it's one it of the earlier. Reasons, uh, I left, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So the challenge is real. So if they can't travel because they've got a newborn, and there's a male who can because he's either not married or he's got a stay-at-home wife, it becomes a very natural thing for a woman to fall out. So the conversation we had last night is actually what can we do, and what can the men do to retain women in that particular bracket. Because I think that at the senior level, getting women into the boardroom, I think that's now well understood. Although it's not well implemented, it's well understood. The conversation is there and we're doing all we can. But to get 
you know, women staying in that bracket is a big challenge and there's a lot that needs to happen for us to succeed and not lose women to become stay-at-home mums and therefore lose that talent, that train that happens when we lose women and therefore lose diversity. And ultimately, it will result in poorer performance for the firm. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.